The following audio is from Summit Church. For more information on Summit Church, visit www.summitonline.tv. I want to thank you again for joining us today. We are walking through the Gospel of Luke. We've been in it for quite a while, actually, but we do get to chapter 3 today. Here's where we've been thus far. We saw the birth of Jesus and the prophecies that surrounded that. We saw what happened during his birth and how heaven and nature, they came to sing. Last week, even, we got a glimpse of Jesus as a 12-year-old. Luke's the only one who records that. But today, today as we start, chapter 3. We're going to look at the first 14 verses. We have the beginning of Jesus' ministry, really the crux of his life, what he came to do. And Luke, who's writing a historical document, that's what he's trying to do. He wants to tell this story with as much detail as he possibly can. So he does not begin this beautiful new chapter with once upon a time out in the wilderness. No, the first two verses are very, very specific to give us a marker in history as to when this all occurred. Let's go to Luke chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod the Tetrarch was over Galilee, his brother Philip the Tetrarch of Ituria, and Traconteus and Licinius were all Tetrarchs of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness." Now you're going, what? Why why can't you just put a date down? Well, he did. And he did so more completely than any of the other gospel writers. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, okay, who took over for Augustus Caesar, who died, we know exactly when, on August the 19th, 14 AD. So this is the 15th year of this new guy's reign. So this all occurred in 29 AD. Now, you go, there's got to be an easier way to say that, but think about it like this. If you said during the third year of Ronald Reagan's presidency, you would know that his presidency started January 20th of 1981, so the third year of his presidency was sometime in 1984. That's a decent way to talk about it. If calendars change and dates change, it's actually brilliant. This was a great way to do it. Now, he overkilled. You know, putting Caesar's reigning year, that would have been more than enough. But no, then he adds several more. Pontius Pilate, you might remember his name from the crucifixion of Jesus. He was just below Caesar politically. He was over the entire region. Well, he ruled from 26 to 36 AD. So that fits right within the timeline. Then you have Herod Antipas, who was the son of Herod the Great. They ruled in that same time frame. That would have been more than enough. But no, then they, you cover the rest of the tetriarchs, and a tetriarch was a ruler of one quarter of Palestine. So you, you see how he's just slowly going down the org chart here. There's one person mentioned, Licinius. There's no other reference to him in history. He, he's literally not known, but Luke throws him in there just to make sure, just to make sure you know that at this moment, God started doing something brand new. And you could almost lose it there at the end of verse 2. You could almost lose the beauty of it because it says the word of God came. God began to speak. Again, for the first time in 400 years, a prophet is telling of what God's doing in the world, what God's coming to do. For the first time in 400 years, God's speaking. He's speaking through John. 
and John, they didn't have last names back then. He's the son of Zechariah. We heard about he and Elizabeth, the priest in the temple, the promise of a child that would prepare the way for the Messiah. We see it, and it's in this moment, in time, that God goes, this has been my plan all along. I'm ready to roll it out, and it's going to come with one who's going to pave the way. He's going to do so with calling the people of God to repentance and with baptism. But his preaching, his preaching is what we're going to get to see today. We're going to get to see John the Baptist, as he's most commonly known, and what he came to do to baptize and to preach and to prepare the hearts of God's people for the coming of the Messiah, the promised one, the one we know now to be Jesus. Luke chapter 3, verse 3, it says this, he went into all the country around the Jordan. That's the Jordan River. Okay, the Jordan River runs from the Sea of Galilee into the Dead Sea, roughly from Nazareth to Jerusalem. We heard last week that's 65 miles. So there's a bunch of wilderness in that area, but the one base of operation he had was the river. He always stayed near the river. He didn't go in the big cities. He was right there on the Jordan. Why? Because he was baptizing. He will see, we'll see in a couple of weeks, he baptized Jesus in that river. That was part of his ministry. So he had people coming from the cities to him. He was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, baptism was not a new idea or concept, okay? That, that's just not the case. Jews for centuries had been baptized, but not for the same reasons that we are baptized, they were baptized to become ceremonially clean, okay? And that's not what John's doing right here. It's a new baptism. It's a new thought. The word of God is changing the game plan right here. He was baptizing specifically, specifically for repentance and the forgiveness of sins. So you came out and you heard him preach. The kingdom of God is near. Get yourself ready. How do we get ready? Well, you need to repent. You need to turn from your wicked ways. You need to turn back to God. And when you take that repentance and you couple it with justifying faith, you receive forgiveness of sins. It's paving the way for the one who would come and baptize with fire and the Holy Spirit. The one who would be the Savior. The one who would unlock it all. And that's what John's doing. He's, he's laying out and beginning to unpack the prophecies that come before the Messiah, before the promised one. Let's look at Luke chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this. All record John's preaching out in the wilderness and the emphasis on this passage, specifically Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, is what he's quoting. But only Luke has him quoting verses 4 and 5 as well. So I want you, we're going to read it from John's perspective or Luke's perspective, but this is John speaking, but he's quoting the book of Isaiah chapter 40. It says this, a voice of one calling in the wilderness to prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. That's huge. Every valley shall be filled in. Every mountain and hill will be made low. The crooked roads shall become straight. The rough ways made smooth. And all people will see God's salvation. Whoo! Prepare the way. The king's coming. Everyone's going to get to see God's salvation. God's promise fulfilled for the forgiveness of sins. 
Everyone's going to get to see it. And it is John the Baptist who prepares the way, who takes the path and makes it straight. He's going to do so through his preaching. But I want you to understand, too, the person hearing this in the first century, it has a whole lot more meaning because when a king determines he's going to come into a town, into a city, they send out a forward guard that says, you got to prepare the way for the king. And what that meant was very simple. Make sure the road is ready. Get rid of any stumbling blocks. If there's something too high to climb over, get rid of it. If there's potholes, fill them in. Whatever you need to do to make sure that that king gets from point A to point B as smoothly as possible, that is your job. You are preparing the way. And that's what John did. Now, people were intrigued by John out in the wilderness. Not only his crazy lifestyle, the way he looks, the, the prophecies around his birth. It wasn't just that. It, it was that he was saying something new. And they wanted to go hear this new message. And it, it's not that it was necessarily cheery. It's repent. Be aware. Something big is about to happen. You need to get yourself right. So it wasn't that it was a cheery message. It was just a different message. Because up until this point, people who wanted to be in favor with God, they had to work so hard and all these rules and regulations to follow. And John's out there talking about your heart and talking about repentance and this new idea of baptism. And people were intrigued, but here's what made it difficult for them. The people who knew the Old Testament they almost unanimously agreed that it was going to be Elijah who came back to fulfill this role. Elijah, one of the more famous prophets of the Old Testament. Elijah, the one who's taken up into heaven. Elijah was the one who was supposed to come back and prepare the way for the Messiah. And now you got a guy named John. Wait, is this right? Are you like the precursor to the precursor? But when, when is Elijah coming back? This was so prominent of a position that Jesus even addressed it in the middle of his ministry in Matthew chapter 11, verses 12 through 15. Here's what Jesus said. From the days of John the Baptist until now, now John the Baptist had been beheaded at this point, so from then until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subject to violence and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. So they were looking towards the future. And then John, he came and he got to unpack something new. And if you're willing, this is the cool part. If you're willing, verse 14, to accept it, he is Elijah who was to come. Now, Jesus isn't saying that he was actually Elijah, but he's saying he fulfilled that role. This is what you were waiting for. Take note, whoever has ears, let them hear. Let them hear that what you thought was going to happen. Maybe it didn't happen exactly the way you thought it was going to happen, but if, if you believe it, that's your Elijah. A guy out in the wilderness that tens of thousands of people flooded to hear him preach, and those who believed were baptized. So what did he say out there? Man, that must have been incredible. Get people to leave their cities and go out in the middle of nowhere. What was he saying? Luke chapter 3, verses 7 and 9. John said to the crowds that were coming. Now, there's a parenthetical that I've added here. Matthew says that there was a large chunk of Pharisees and Sadducees that were part of this crowd. Those were the religious leaders of the day. 
Okay, Luke does not include that, but they're writing the same story, just from two different perspectives. And I think it's important to add that in here because of what John says next, okay? So John was preaching to the crowds. There's some Pharisees and Sadducees out there, all of them who came out to be baptized by him. But he says, you brood of vipers, speaking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You religious elite who think you're better than everybody else. You're like a bunch of snakes. And some of you have genuinely come out here to hear what I'm saying. Others have come out here to shut me down. Some of you, some of your colleagues, I've baptized. They, they saw the way. Others, you're just snarling at me, causing me problems. But he looks at all of the religious leaders, the self-righteous within the group. And he says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? What, what made you come check this out? What, what made some of you decide to give up your high and mighty posture and turn and repent? Who warned you? He said, verse 8, you need to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. You think God needs you? You think if you weren't here, God would be helpless? No, 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 no. Oh, humble yourself, religious leaders. God can take stones and do whatever he wants with them. You need to hear. You need to hear the message. And you need to turn and you need to repent. Because, verse 9, the axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. These religious leaders and many, many of the Jews who came out to hear John the Baptist preach, they believed they were good. They believed their position and their power and their family lineage. They believed all of that is what made them right with God. And John says, no, you couldn't be more wrong. You need to repent. You need to change your direction. You need to address your thinking and your behavior needs to change. This all comes from you putting your faith not in Abraham or your lineage or your lofty position, but in the one who is to come, the one who is the promise. You think God needs you and he'd be no good without you. Now he can use rocks. And he tells them you need to become like true children. You're holding on to this idea that you're a child of God or a child of Abraham. You think that makes you special, but no, you need to become like true children. And in first century Jewish culture, it was believed that a true child would take on the nature of the father. And when you hear that, does it not start to send some bells in your mind on the true nature of the father? That's, that's what Jesus preached a whole lot. Produce good fruit. Fruit that can be seen. Fruit that comes from an inner change of your heart and your mind. Fruit that comes through faith, a, a, a saving faith, an active faith. A faith that has deeds attached to it. Not that the deeds save you, but the faith doesn't. It has good deeds attached to it. Jesus in the whole New Testament, they, that's all he taught. And you've got John beginning that message. Let your faith let your faith, not your position, not your power, not your self-righteousness, let your faith be seen in your fruit because faith without deeds is dead. It's not saving faith. So 
I'm sure that John's message was larger than that. But this is the gist. This is the summary that Luke gives us. But look at how effective it was. Verses 10 and 11. What do we do then? Now I've got to believe this is some of those vipers he was talking to. So some of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they go, okay, what do we do? The crowd asked. You tell us to turn and repent, to bear good fruit. How? John's answers to these next few groups of people are mind-blowing to me because of their simplicity. Mind-blowing because of their simplicity. John answered, verse 11, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. I've said this multiple times here. Within the kingdom of God, there is more than enough, but there's not enough for anyone to have more than enough. That's a kingdom principle that, that God has for his people. If you've got two and someone else has none, give them one. It's all mine anyway. Don't just look out for yourself. Look at what, look at what he's truly saying here. He's saying, be charitable. Be kind, be gracious, be generous, just as God the Father is those things to you. The message is changing. It's not about your lineage anymore. It's not about how well you dress. It's about how well you love, how well you reflect the love of the Father. It's about being a good neighbor it's about being for people because God is for people. Now there's another group obviously listening on this day and, and they shout out, even the tax collectors, verses 12 and 13, even the tax collectors came to be baptized. The tax collectors were the most hated group of people in the region. Why? Because they were the tax collectors. They would come and they would say, you owe this to Rome. You have no recourse. You just pay whatever they say. Then they take some of theirs and they take it back to the chief tax collector. That was Zacchaeus. We talked about him a few weeks ago in our 4U series. That was Zacchaeus for this region. And then that person took it directly to Rome. Every person along the way put a little bit in their own pocket. No wonder they were disliked. So the tax collectors said, what do we need to do? Teacher, they asked, what should we do? You would expect the most hated group of people in the region and the most loved prophet, when they go head to head for the prophet to have a lot of words for them. Well, what I need you to do different is I need you to stop collecting any more than is required. Just do your job. But don't become wealthy at the expense of others. Do your job, but do it honestly and do it faithfully. Be fair in your dealings with other people. This is not revolutionary content here, but he's speaking to specific groups of people who need to change specific areas of ungodliness in their life. If they're going to repent, they're going to put their faith into this promised one. You've got to look at the biggest stumbling block that you have. And for the tax collectors, it was their livelihood and how dishonest they were. Luke 3, verse 14. Then some soldiers asked him, these could have been temple guards 
but more than likely they were Roman soldiers. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Don't frighten people because you have the seal of Rome on your chest. Don't frighten people because you carry a sword and they don't. Don't accuse people falsely so that they will bribe you to let them go. Don't extort money from them just because you're stronger and bigger. Don't be a bully. Just stop. Be content with your pay. I did a little research. The average Roman soldier was paid 225 denarii a year. One denarii was considered to be a day's wage, a fair day's wage. Okay? So here's what we're seeing. They're at a deficit of about 30% of what this, the average worker in the town got. So when that average worker would come home, having made 30% more than the soldier fighting for the country, that soldier would say, I need some of that. I'm getting paid less than you, and that's not fair. So, so give me some of that. And if you're thinking, well, the soldier gets all their food and uh, you know, their clothing, it's, it's provided for by the government. Not true. They had to buy all that too. So it seems like kind of a wonky system. But that's what was happening. And that's why those last few words right there are so telling. Be content with your pay. Even though it's way less than you probably should be making, be content with your pay. Can we take these encounters with John by the Jordan with specific groups in a specific time period and go, how do I apply this specifically to my life? The answer is not directly, no. No, that, that would be difficult to do. So I think it's better to generalize, okay, generalize what John is preaching here. What John is saying is that these individuals need to radically change the way they are living their life. They need to start loving their neighbor. They need to repent. They need to turn. They need to change their attitudes, and they need to look more like the Father. John is saying, he's preaching, that good children who bear good fruit from the faith that is active in their life are going to take on the nature of the Father. And I think that's the message that we need to hear today. Question for you. If John walked into your living room or wherever you're watching this, and you had the opportunity to ask him specifically, what do I need to do? What do I need to do to bear good fruit? What do I need to do to repent? What do I need to repent from? What do I need to do? What do you think he would say? And you're going, well, that's an interesting question, but unrealistic. So let me ask you a more realistic question. When is the last time you asked God, what do I need to do? Because the one thing I know to be true about God is that the main thing he wants to deal with each of us regarding is any idols or any desires that have become non-negotiable. He wants to deal with those first. And so when you ask, if you ask God, he'll let you know. And in fact, what happens most times is we don't want to hear the answer so we just stop talking to him altogether. But when is the last time that you asked God, what do I need to do?
What do I need to do to look more like you? Are you willing to turn from your ungodly ways and start living like the Father who is generous, fair, content, upright? That's the kind of life that, that he desires for us all. Changing the way that we do our lives so we can better serve and love those around us by allowing God to change you from the inside out. God will help your heart to look more like his heart. And he'll show you where you need to repent for that to occur. And not to scare anyone. But going back to verse 9, the other option is not one you want. The axe is already there, ready to take out the tree that doesn't bear fruit and chunk it in the fire. And not to rain on your parade, but that it's a very real reality for someone who hears a message like this and chooses to ignore it. For someone maybe like the thousands that went out and heard John preach and thought, that's not for me. But you hear this message and, and you get to decide, you get, you get to choose how you're going to respond and doing nothing is a response. But my prayer for you, so your response would be to ask God, how can I look more like you? Come in with your grace and your love and your mercy and your gentleness and your discipline. Come and, come and make me look more like you. Show me what I need to turn from, repent from, and help me serve you and love you in the way that I serve and love those around me every day of my life. Good children, good children take on the nature of the Father. So Father, help us to look more like you, to be your true children through faith in your son, Jesus. Move mightily in and through us and just speak to our hearts. Speak to our hearts. Work in ways that only you can work. We love you. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.